Father, thank You for the Bible and how it reveals Jesus to us again and again and again. A Savior. And Lord, we pray this morning that we'd see that more clearly than ever. That You would inspire us with hope in the promise of all that You want to be for us. Lord, give us understanding Help my words not to get in the way of what you long to accomplish through your word. Lord, may you take over through the power of the Holy Spirit. May our hearts be open to receive the word. May our ears be attentive to hear. And may we fall more deeply in love with Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2010, I headed off to Andrews University, and as I was going there to take the Masters of Divinity, I had some elective options in my classes. And as I was thinking about what classes I wanted to take, I'd passed the Hebrew entrance exam, but just barely, so I didn't have to take the regular Hebrew classes. And I thought, you know what I want? I want to be able to read the Old Testament in the original language. So I'm going to take this advanced Hebrew class. That's a brilliant idea. So I signed up for this class and I get there and there's about four people sitting around a table with Professor Jacques Toucan. And as I'm sitting there in the class and he's very intense about what we're going to be learning and saying, you all are probably going to be teachers. If you signed up for this class, you're going to be Hebrew teachers. I don't want to be a Hebrew teacher. I just want to be able to read my Bible and and, and be a pastor. Well, And then I, I talked to some people about the class and they began to tell me, yeah, He makes people cry in that class. He will point you out and embarrass you if you do not know how to parse the verb that he's talking about or how to tell you all the grammatical things in the Hebrew. I thought, great, this is going to be a fantastic semester, I can tell already. Towards the end of the semester, he began to tell us about this final exam. He said, what's going to take place is you're going to be given a passage from somewhere in the Hebrew Bible, anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, and you have to translate the entire passage. Then you have to interpret all of the grammatical things and, and parse it all out and tell us, tell me all about what's there. And Hebrew is very different. Some parts are really easy, like Second Samuel, for instance, and some parts, like Job, are intensely difficult. Poetry in the, in the, in the Old Testament is, is, it's, it's unreal how difficult it was. Our eyes just all got huge as saucers to think about this test that we were going to have to do. Thankfully, actually, when it got to the test, he chose something from Second Samuel, and it was a familiar story, and it was really easy to go through it. But he gave us this test because he wanted us to be prepared. He wanted us to be able to pick up the Bible and to be able to read in the Hebrew for ourselves. Have you ever had a test that caused you to sweat? In fact, maybe you still have nightmares. A lot of us have this nightmare where it's the end of the semester and we haven't studied at all and suddenly we find out that we have to take this test and we're all just so terrified of the test that we're about to face. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21 with me. In Genesis chapter 21, we we looked at last year a bit of this story after Sarah has Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 21... Towards the end of the chapter, it gives us another story that takes place in the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 21 and verse 22 says this, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Isn't that amazing? This 
Philistine commander. We talked about the sea people a few weeks ago. This Philistine king and his army commander, they come to Abraham and they're like, hey, God is with you in absolutely everything that you do. I long for that to be said about my life. And I long for us to have that close of a walk with God, that that's what would be said about us. God is with you. And I wish that the story ended there for Abraham's sake. But verse 23 continues. It says this, Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity. It says, don't lie to me anymore. Stop lying to me. Do you remember when he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister? And Abimelech's like, how would you do that to me? Why? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Here you have Abraham, who is this righteous man of faith, this person that walks with God. And God has a problem because Abraham is known as a liar by the people around him. God had promised in Genesis 12 at the very beginning, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations around you. And the nations around him are coming to him and they're like, Please, just don't deceive me anymore. Now, they did come to make a covenant, and and things are on an upward swing for Abraham's influence. But if you look throughout the experience of Abraham, it's a little dismal when you think about him being a man of faith. Abraham's failings. Let's just look at a list of them here. This is just the ones that I came up with. Genesis chapter 12. You have him fleeing to Egypt, lying about Sarah to Pharaoh that he was his sister that she was his sister. That's Genesis chapter 12. Then you have uh, him saying that Eliezer should be my heir. God promises, I'm going to make your descendants, uh, I'm going to be your shield, your very great reward in Genesis 15. And he says, you only gave me Eliezer, a servant. You're not even giving me one child, let alone a multitude of children. He doubts God's promise. Then in Genesis chapter 16, after that chapter where he believes God and it's accounted to him as righteousness, the very next chapter, Sarah's like, hey, take Hagar, make her your wife. And through that, they make Ishmael and this huge problem occurs in his family because he's not trusting God's promises. Genesis chapter 17, he laughs at God's promise that God is going to do it through Sarah, not through uh, Hagar, and he, Abraham laughs and then says, no, please let Ishmael be the one. And God says, no, Sarah is going to have a child and you're going to name him Laughter. Then he lies to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, about Sarah. So these are just a few, a list of, of things that, that aren't very positive about Abraham. And so, so you wonder when you read what, what Paul has to say, for instance, about Abraham. Now, I, I grappled with this this week because Leah and I are reading through this Bible plan that some of you are reading through, the Machine reading plan, and it's reading through Romans as part of it right now. And she's reading through Romans chapter 4 this week, and she says, hang on a second, you've been telling us all of these stories about Abraham and how he lived, and, and why is Paul saying this? Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. And not being weak in faith, this is talking about Abraham, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Like, hang on a second, Paul, do you have the same Bible that I have? Have you read the same stories about Abraham that I've read? Maybe Paul's just 
you know, adding things up. We talked about how the Muslim religion, the end time judgment weighs out your good deeds and your bad deeds in my understanding of it. So maybe he's just considering it that way. But look at what Proverbs 17 verse 15 says. He who justifies the wicked. Okay, so somebody is a wicked person. And and if I justify that person, or he who condemns a just or righteous person, both of them alike are an, what does it say? Abomination to the Lord. So it says you don't just call somebody righteous if they're actually wicked. And you don't call somebody wicked if they're actually just. So is, is Paul just saying that, that God just declares that Abraham is a righteous person and, and he just says it about him and that's it? I hope not, because God says it's an abomination to him for somebody to actually do that. So I don't think God is just saying, Abraham is a righteous person and I've said that about him. It's not actually true, but he's a righteous person. How do we grapple with this? Maybe it's like, like we said, maybe it's if we look at the comparison between his failings and his faithfulness. Maybe there's more faithfulness there. You look at how he left Ur, the coming out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is where Babylon was seated. He comes out of there not knowing where he's going at God's command. He builds altars throughout the Canaanite territory to worship Yahweh. He's generous to people. Lot, he says, take any of the land. He says uh, to the king of Sodom, no, I'm not going to keep any of your people. I'm not going to keep any of the spoil, but you take it all back. I'm going to give it all back. He was generous. He had hospitality. When people are walking past his tent, he's chasing after them, begging for them to come over so that he can provide a feast for them in order for them to be at his house. Um, He intercedes for wicked Sodom and Gomorrah, pleading with God that if he could just find 10 righteous people there, that he won't destroy it. So there's, there's these pictures of faithfulness. Uh, you see his obedience when it comes to sacrificing Isaac. We looked at Isaac and Sarah, uh, Isaac and Hagar with Ishmael's story last week. And you see this, this faithfulness and obedience in this. Is it just the fact that, well, the good thing is that Abraham had enough good deeds that he did in his life, and it happens to outweigh these bad deeds, and so Abraham is righteous. Is that the way it works in our life? If we do more good than bad and it outweighs it, then, then it's, we're good to go? Or if the bad outweighs the good, too bad. You just better get started early enough in your life. Sometimes we Christians can picture things that way. For instance, let's say we had a week where we know that we weren't walking with God and we're like, oh man, I better go to church this week because of what took place this past week. Or maybe in the morning you're like, ah, oh, I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray because, because of what I did last night. And we're trying to like make up and maybe if we have more of the good things in our life, then maybe that will atone for the bad things in our life. Is that the picture of why Abraham says that he's this man of faith who did not waver? I believe it's something more than that as we'll see here. You know, later on, God says this in Genesis chapter 26. He's talking to Isaac and saying, hey, this is why I'm going to bless and continue to bless your family. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Because Abraham was faithful to me. It's such a beautiful picture of who Abraham is. And how do we grapple with the fact that that wasn't the way Abraham was in every decision that he made? 
we see this list of failures and we wonder. And sometimes you might look at the failures in your own life and think, well, yeah, that's great for Abraham to be a man of faith. And maybe that's great for, for the leaders in the church to be great people, but, but not for me. Have you seen my past? Have you seen the life that I've lived? God does something right after this when Abimelech and Phicol come up to him and saying, hey, stop swearing falsely to us. God does something to demonstrate both to Abraham and to those around him that there is a Savior. And that Abraham is trusting in that Savior. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, the very next story, it says this, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. It's the first test in the Bible. The first time that word is used in the Bible. And we talked a little bit about this story last week, and we've, we've looked at this story in more detail a year or so ago. But this story where, where God shows up to Abraham and says to him, Okay, take now your only son, and sacrifice him at the place that I will show you. Terrible. I, I hate that story. Just to think about what it entails. And I believe that God wants for us to recognize in that something that is appalling to us. God wants us to realize that, that a huge sacrifice had to take place because of our failings and missteps along the way. Because of our falling far short of what life connection to God could be like, that it created an infinite sacrifice that took place like we talked about last night with Jesus. And we witness as Abraham goes in this, he wakes up early in the morning, he goes on this journey and we see all these reflections of Jesus. It says, take your only son, which is what later on Nicodemus is told about God sending his only begotten son to save this world. And then he lays on Isaac the wood for sacrifice. And, and Isaac walks up that mountain. And he's walking up that mountain, which later will be where the temple is built, which later is where Jesus himself will come and be crucified. And he's carrying the wood for sacrifice. And as he's going up there, you can imagine the heart-rending moment when Abraham is asked by Isaac, Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And his response gives us a little glimmer that he is beginning to have true faith. Because he says, God will provide himself as a sacrifice. That's what you could literally translate in the Hebrew. He says, God's going to provide a sacrifice. And then after God does, he says, the, the mountain became called on the mount of the Lord. It will be provided because God has provided a solution to the sin problem on this planet. God has provided the answer to sin. And God looks at our lives when we are trusting in Jesus based upon that solution. Because of what he actually begins to work out in our lives through the power of trusting in Jesus Christ. Patriarchs and Prophets talking about commenting on Genesis chapter 22. It says, it was to impress Abraham's mind with the reality of the gospel. How real the gospel is. As well as to test his faith that God commanded him to slay his son. God wanted him to recognize the beauty of the fact that there is a Redeemer. There is a Savior. He wanted him to grasp it in a really, really practical way. So James chapter 2 kind of takes a different perspective that it's funny because if you, if you read what Martin Luther has to say about the book of James or, or what he would comment about the book of James, 
He actually said it was a book of straw that should be taken out of the Bible. He didn't like James. He thought it was a mistake that James was in the Bible. Because James doesn't focus on our belief in Jesus on the outward just cursory reading of it. I really believe it does, actually. But it talks about how we are to live as loving Christians, how we are to actually live out our faith. So talking about Abraham, James chapter 2, verse 18 says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now he's been talking about how, hey, if somebody comes to you and they're cold and you have a jacket and you say, hey, be warmed and go in peace, but you don't give them the jacket that you could give them, then you're missing the whole point of what it means to be a Christian. And here he's saying, hey, someone will say, hey, I have faith. And he'll say, I have works. And he'll say, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That faith, there's something substantive to it that, that when you begin to believe and trust this person named Jesus Christ, when you begin to believe him, it transforms your heart and it results in fruit being born in your life. Let's continue reading in verse 19 of James chapter 2. Does you believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You know, this is a good thing for us to take heed of as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, because we read the Bible and sometimes we get to thinking that it's all about knowing the right stuff. Have you ever felt that way? If I just understood all of the doctrines in just the right way, that's all I need in order to be saved. If I understand that the seventh day is the Sabbath, I understand these things about Jesus and His salvation in my life. If I just understand it, that's enough. Well, the devil knows the Bible better than me, I think. I don't know about you, but I believe that, that he has this, this knowledge of God that it's been expanding for thousands of years, right? So he understands far more about God. And it says that the demons believe and they tremble. So just to know it, just to know about this person, just to, to believe in what he is and how powerful he is and the stuff that he said in the Bible is not enough, James says. Verse 20 says, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's actually dead. It's, 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 there's no value to it whatsoever. Verse 21 continues, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So this is saying something that, that, that at first we're like, hey, is this totally contradicting what Paul is saying when he says that you are justified by faith alone? Just believe in Jesus. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and that's the end of the story. And James is saying, well, Abraham had to go and sacrifice his son and it was in the process that he was justified by works interesting so were we saved by our works are we justified by our works well let's let's let james continue to go on verse 22 do you see that faith was working together with his works and by work faith by works faith was made perfect this is a fascinating point for your christian walk 
It's saying this, that, that Abraham was given this practical experience. God wakes him up and God says to him, okay, you're going to go and you're going to actually live out the gospel. And as you do that, your faith is going to be perfected and strengthened. As you take a step in the direction that I'm asking you to go in, you're going to find that you believe more. Do you trust me enough to begin that first step? And as you step out in faith, whatever it might be, we could, we could have similar experiences. Maybe it might be in, hey, we have a, an issue with working on the Sabbath and we'd like to, to step out in faith and to, tr- tr- to test God in that. And as we step out in faith to do what he asks us to do, and we see him begin to provide and step in for us, that increases our faith. Does this make sense? We take the first step because we believe. And as we believe and step forward, those works result in greater faith as we begin to trust more in what he is doing for us. Abraham was given this beautiful experience of actually going and participating and experiencing the gospel and of offering what was the most valuable and treasured thing to him in all of his life. He waited for a son for years and years, decades. And to be asked to give that was the greatest sacrifice he could have been asked to give. And as he's doing it, he's telling his son, hey, God will provide. He tells the two young men who are down below, he says, hey, Isaac and I, we're going up to the mountain to worship and we're coming back. Hebrews 11 tells us that he had faith that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if that's what it took. He trusted God to the place where he kept walking forward in faith. And God wants for us to have that same experience of walking with him. In fact, this is the first place in the Bible where it says to fear God. Now I know, Abraham, that you fear God. When he offered that sacrifice, and we've talked a lot about the three angels' messages. That's that's what we believe as a Seventh-day Adventist church, that we're called to proclaim the eternal gospel, that we're called to, to invite people to fear God and to keep his commandments. And in the process of doing that, we see that, that to fear God is to trust him to such an extent as Abraham did and being willing to give up absolutely everything to him because we know that he will provide, that he is our Savior, that he is our Redeemer. We really can trust him all the way. Now verse 23 is a key point here of, of what James is saying, I believe. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, so God said that back in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believes God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God says it about him and God says it about him because he's going to make it true in his life. Does this make sense? When God says you are righteous, it's because he actually wants to heal the sin in our lives, the selfishness in our lives. And he wants to transform us into being selflessly, other-centered, loving people like Jesus. And then it closes with this key line. And he was called the friend of God. I just want you, if you walk away with nothing else today, to remember that Abraham was a friend of God. That, that father of faith who did all these amazing things that we look back on and we say, wow, God used him in such powerful ways. He was a friend of God. That's how he's known in the Bible. Similar to Moses. Moses was known as the one who talked to God face to face as a man talks with his friend. He had friendship with God. And that is the key to a life of faith. Friendship with God.
You know, if you think about what God expects of our lives, we talked about I'm pressing on in our, our hymn we sung earlier. I'm pressing on the upward way, pressing on each day. I'm, I'm going a little bit higher, a little bit closer to God. What does that walk with God look like? How is God treating us in that? God wants to be not just the friend of Abraham, of Moses, but your friend. God is your number one cheerleader, your number one fan. God is the one who wants to see you walk the walk of faith. And I know this because He wants to be your father. I know it because he, Jesus Himself says, I have called you friends. If you love me, keep my commandments. He says it all in the same passage. And I know it because now I'm a dad and I've experienced the joy of wanting my child to walk. This is a little video of Abby. I came home from the farm work bee. Thanks to those of you who were able to help us last week on the farm work bee. Came home from the farm work bee. And I said, okay, Leah, this is the moment maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. But let's see if, let's see if we can get Abby to walk. So we took Abby. We set her there in the middle of the room. <laughs> and she took her first steps. We were jumping off the wall. And you can't believe how upset I was. Did you see how she fell at the end? I went up to Abby and I said, if you ever fall again, if you don't have stronger legs, I'm going to tell you what, you are going to, you'd be really worried. Don't turn me in. I, I, seriously, I didn't do that. I was so excited. And then we took Livy. We're like, okay, Livy, it's your turn. So we took Livy and we set her in the middle of the room. As a father, you are so thrilled just to see that tiny, tottering little step and to even see them as they fall. You're cheering your heart out because they took a step. But we as Christians are so focused on the fall. We're so focused on, did you see how I fell this last week? Did you see how I fell yesterday? Did you see how I fell this morning? We're so focused on that rather than on God who's cheering us on to take one more step. On God who says, you took three more steps than you took yesterday. Keep on going. And it's so much better than with Abby and Olivia because I can't be there to hold them up all the time. I can't be there to strengthen them. But look at when God called Abraham a friend. One of the two times in the Old Testament when he calls him a friend. In Isaiah chapter 41, look at what he says. Okay, this is so beautiful. Don't walk out of here without getting what God wants to be to you as a friend. Can, can we disagree that we're going to listen really carefully? Because I don't want you to walk away from here not recognizing what an incredible God you have. Okay, so you, you listening? I need to see hands. That's what teachers do, right? They say, if you're listening, just raise your hand up. Okay, okay that's good. Isaiah 41 verse 8 says, But you, Israel, are my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham. What does it say? My friend. Okay, so one of the two times that it calls Abraham my friend, he's saying, I chose you because you're descendants of Abraham, who is my friend. Which in the New Testament, it tells us, hey, you are spiritual Israel. When you believe in God, you are children of Abraham. And, and Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, if you were children of Abraham, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. You would be my friends too. So Isaiah 41.8 talks about being his friend. And then verse 9 goes into saying, and I've chosen you from and pulled you to this land from all different places. But notice verse 10. This is crucial. Verse 10 says this, fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What does it mean to be a friend of God? It means to keep that hand in God's hand. It means to let Him hold you up to every step of the walk that you're taking steps forward because He's pulling you along, because He's lifting you up, because your hand is in the hand of a righteous God who's a promise-keeping God. The entire Bible can be summarized in this. God makes a promise to us. He fulfills it in Jesus. And now He's beginning to fulfill it in the hearts of His people who are trusting in Jesus. I, the Lord your God, will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We see this practically, how it takes place in our lives. Paul's commenting in Galatians 5, 6 on, on a checklist that people had in that day. Now we tend to make checklists. Hey, in order to be like Abraham, I need to, and we begin to check off things. In order to live in the end times, to make it through to the end, to be ready for Jesus coming, we make this checklist of things. And, and Paul is addressing the check, checklist that they had at that time, which was not a God-inspired checklist. Uh, since they were arguing about circumcision at the time, uh, which was something that was fulfilled in, in Christ, that they didn't need to, to still, still be participating in. But, but he's tired of the argument, and so he says it this way. Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Basically saying there's nothing that matters. Circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. But this matters. Faith working through love. And the word for working there is where we get our word for energy. It's, It's basically saying faith is energized through love. That's why Abraham was given this test. It wasn't to make his life more difficult. It was to help him to recognize that he had a loving Savior, a God who was willingly going to sacrifice himself on Abraham's behalf. And as he saw that love, God knew that that love would work in him and that faith and love working together would be all that mattered for Abraham. That's what it means. We need this friendship with God because love energizes our faith. It enables us to trust more deeply in a person who's going to hold us by the hand and walk us through every difficult time in our lives, every difficult command that God gives us. We've got to see God as a loving friend. It's an amazing reality to realize that God calls you and I to be friends of God just like Abraham. Abraham's failings, when, when Paul writes the history about Abraham, when, when he writes it in Romans 4, when he writes it in Hebrews chapter 11, he glosses over this laundry list of bad deeds because Abraham was trusting in a Savior. It's the same way in your life, in my life. God rewrites our history in Jesus. As we trust in Him, He heals and He restores and He transforms. But He doesn't just declare it about us in a way that leaves us that way, but He actually wants to make you a loving person just like Jesus. So let's look at Romans 4 again. Verse 17, we're going to start a little bit earlier. Just listen to this, thinking about this history of Abraham. In the presence of Him whom He believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which did not exist as though they did. Abraham 
wasn't all that God had described him as, but he's calling him that in order to resurrect in him through the power of Jesus that reality and making him a righteous person. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith. Isn't that awesome to hear? Abraham was not weak in faith. The one who lied to Pharaoh, the one who lied to Abimelech, God sees that as he began to trust more and more, and he was a friend of Jesus, that he really wasn't weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, the, the, the emphasis of Romans chapter 4, we don't have time to look at it in detail, is the deadness and the life that can come out of that. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. What an incredible reality. God wants for your life to bring glory to God as you begin to trust more and more in him as a friend. If you think about it, I heard somebody illustrate it like this. It's like a dad in a swimming pool, and there's a crowd of people around, and he has his child there on the, on the edge of the pool, and he's saying, jump to me. And that child can glorify his dad by jumping out in faith because he knows that his dad will catch him. Or he can turn away, and people are going to say, man, what kind of dad is that? He, he either gives arbitrary or he, he isn't going to really catch him or, or that son just doesn't really know his dad and love his dad. But when we leap out in faith into the arms of a Savior, we can know that we're bringing glory to God, not by what we accomplish, but by the fact that we're trusting in His hand to hold us up and to see us through. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16 says it this way, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. A righteous person like Abraham, he can be declared righteous, he can fall, but he'll keep on getting up in the strength of Jesus. The difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person, the next one of it says, and a wicked person falls in time of calamity and by implication doesn't get back up. You want to be a righteous person? Don't focus on not falling. Focus on letting Jesus keep picking you up. Focus on letting Jesus work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Focus on being friends with Jesus, and he's going to transform everything in your life. A righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumbles in times of calamity. A day or so later, Livy was doing that, and I, I was like, oh, i got to get a, a video of this. And then that verse really came to mind as I watched her determination and getting back up and getting back up and getting back up. I'm confident that Livy's going to walk. 
Because she won't stop getting back up. And if you keep getting back up, you too can know that you will walk the walk of faith. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He's promised to work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And he said that, hey, a righteous person may fall seven times, but they rise again. Not in their own strength, but they're rising through the friend who says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will strengthen you. That's exactly what Paul says about about uh, the faith that Abraham had. It says that he was strengthened in his faith. It kept getting strengthened, and it's a passive word there. He was strengthened in his faith. It was something that was occurring to him through a loving, almighty Savior who wants to do the same for you and I. Desire of Ages, page 679, says this, Christ rejoiced that he could do more for his followers than they could ask or think. He knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories, not seen to be such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. Don't worry about your failures now. Focus on Jesus. Don't focus on what you can accomplish, but focus on the victory that Jesus has promised that he will give you. Pray that prayer of 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Abraham did not waver at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. God's longing to make us a people who walk in the strength of Jesus, who just keep stepping out because we trust a loving Savior. God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to love more people around me? You want to transform me to be a loving person like you did for Abraham? That's the reality of what he's longing to do in our lives as we close this series looking at the life of Abraham. It can be with confidence that he wants you to be a child of Abraham. That he wants to work in you a loving life that will transform the world around you. That he wants to fulfill that promise to Abraham that he will bless all of the nations and he wants to do it through you, through Jesus living in you. Again, I want to encourage you to come next week because I believe that as Pastor Chris Blake shares next week, it'll give us just some practical pictures of, of how we might take a step of faith in practically loving the people around us. Come to prayer meeting. We're trying out some different things where we actually are trying to, to do some things that can be a blessing to people around us. But most importantly, fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you do, He will transform your heart to be a loving, faithful follower. Not in your strength, but in his strength. Go ahead and bow your heads with me as we close. As you do, maybe, maybe you want to just be have an honest, open-hearted moment with God. Maybe there's been some failures in your past history, some things that you're not so proud of, like there is in mine. You just want to give those things to Jesus right now. Just go ahead and do that. Say, God... You know who I am. And I just want to accept your forgiveness and your mercy. I want to accept all that there is for me in Jesus. And I want to encourage you not to just stop there. But it, to invite him. To say, God, I want to be your friend like Abraham. I want to have faith that's energized by love. Would you please fill me and live in me would you strengthen me? Would you uphold me with your righteous right hand? And don't just pray that prayer right now. But pray it every day. 
pray it every moment that you think of it. Keep clinging to the hand that wants to hold you up. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who wants to uphold us with your righteous right hand, that you want to see us walk, that you're cheering us on for every step that we take. God, forgive me for being so focused on the times when I fall. Help me to turn those things to you, to confess them, and to let you pick me back up. Thank you that a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. God, we want to be closer friends with you. Help us to take time for that every day, to open the Bible, to take time in prayer, to talk to you throughout the day, to treat you like the friend that you're willing to be to us. Father, we love you because you first loved us. May you lead us to love you more every day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.